Hi, everybody. Uh, before we start, I'd just like to acknowledge that we're on Wajakmanyabuja and pay our respects to ancestors past, present, and emerging as well. Uh, thanks for all coming in for this long table discussion, which apparently I'm hosting. I've never, I've never hosted a long table discussion before or even been to one, so maybe not the best choice to be the host, but I'll, I'll, I'll try my best. Uh, so this is just going to be like, we've got some sort of etiquette up there about like what we're expecting from this sort of session, but also their guidelines really, not rules. So I think the main idea is we're just going to have a bit of a conversation. We have these microphones here. So these microphones are for quiet talkers like myself. So everybody at the back can hear. Uh, but the session is also being recorded, so we've got some little mics on the table here, so that's going to be recorded and shared through the recording network. We also have a, a videographer over there who's going to be taking some footage, so just so you're aware, what we say is going to be recorded forever and possibly <laughs> eventually in the future. Uh, so, this long table is about equality and collaborative process, and so. For me, I guess that's like as a disabled artist, it's how do how do you work with other people? How do you work with other artists that have disability? How do you work with able-bodied artists and non-artists as well? So I don't really know where to begin. Does anybody have any anybody want to jump in and sort of help me so I'm not just talking into the void? <laughs> Jeremy? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a really interesting topic to be part of and to be um, one of the provocateurs. Um, coming off the back of last week where we had the Collyong Artist Lab, which Crystal and um, Ella and others, forgive me, um, of technology that we're a part of, I guess um, for me, being in that space also as a disabled man was really interesting and I guess how to empower that, you know, emerging such a fraught word, but the emerging artists and everything and, and I think one of the things that we did, which is the lab has a strong track record in doing, is bringing in um, ally artists, as we call them, that didn't necessarily identify with the focus of the lab. So we had um, five ally artists this year and I think it was a really amazing process to watch how a space can be disability led but also supported by able-bodied and sort of differently identifying artists and arts workers as well. Um, and I know there's many people around this table here and in this room indeed that would have been part of similar processes um, and can speak to their own personal experiences and whatnot. Something that I've um, always uh, I guess return to when in terms of the creative process that I've been part of as a producer was when I was working at Dada and working with two disabled First Nation artists in the Kimberley in Fitzroy Crossing. Um, that was a sort of two and a half year project sort of working with an incredible visual artist, Miss Yule, who sadly passed away now, and um, a videographer, Aquinas Crow. But the whole act of listening, the whole act of slow producing and how you can sort of enable their voice first to be found and then to be heard. Hmm. I should also say that awkward silence is a part of this process as well. So that's that, that too, before we... 
Uh, anybody else want to add anything? Like you can have one of these mics, or should I just? Because I've got something to, to say, like about that. Like, okay. I've always been like I've always had a disability. Like it's something that's been with me forever. And I think similar to you, Jeremy, we've had this conversation before. I never really wanted to identify as somebody that had a disability. Like it took me like to my mid thirties before I was actively saying. And I'd say I'm a person with a disability, so I wouldn't say that I'm a disabled person. And it's only in the last maybe six or seven months that I've actually flipped that around and said I'm a disabled person and I'm, I'm proud of it. And it's like, it's definitely a part of my identity and it's something that that I think is a great thing. Like I, I'm quite happy in my own body and in my own flesh. It took me sort of a long time to get to that point. And the reason that I'm sort of saying this is because like in my, all the creative work that I've done, I've been the disabled person, like in a room full of able-bodied people, you know, able-bodied creators, able-bodied producers, and other able-bodied artists. Like it took something like Koyang for me to start knowing other creatives working in this industry that have disability and just seeing, seeing them around and seeing them doing amazing things. I think that gave me heaps and heaps of confidence to do the same sort of thing. Um, I can definitely, uh, that resonates a lot with me and I think I'm at a point in my life uh, and my uh, career where I'm struggling a lot to, um, I have a really complex relationship with what I can contribute to a collaborative process, being visibly different or like disclosing what I need um, because I think I've spent um, the majority of my time here practicing trying to overcompensate um, to like, my abilities to be like, oh, I'm disabled but not that disabled, I'm not fussy. Um, if you don't have a ramp, it's fine. I'll just go to the back. And, I won't make um, a scene. I won't make a scene. Um, but that's like the bare minimum. But things like, you know, uh, fatigue, chronic illness, pain, things that um, is not relatable or perceived as, oh, if I'm always peppy, then they won't see me as someone that is fussy and they won't hire me. Um, or things like that. Um, I would go to that extreme to try to be like, okay, I can fit into this context and this, um, the rule of the room. As long as I can do that, then I'm fine. But then I think lately I've learned that it's not sustainable and it is important to, even though it's hard, it's important to self-advocate. As long as I wouldn't say special, I hate that, like different support needs. Um, and I've learned recently uh, working in projects where I was allowed to give, uh, to be given that space to self-advocate and that time, like we have the saying of like, what's that called? Um, crip time? Crip time. Yeah. It's, <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's not um, linear, it's not the Western time frame of like, you gotta be here at this time, warm up this time, uh, device this time, get on stage, blah, blah, blah. 
it's about listening, deep listening to everyone's needs. And I think it universally um, is beneficial for everybody, not just me. And I find that it's really beautiful when I speak up and, I, and everyone else feels the courage to say so as well, even though they have invisible illnesses or kids, family life, um, and they feel like they could. Um, and I have to commend um, the most recent project that I was able to work on with Emma, where she, from the get-go and performing lines as well, just gave me that space to be like, we understand that you might feel timid or feel weird bringing up things. Here is the space, tell us, and also um, you can change your mind. You can, throughout the time, you can um, speak up and don't feel like the onus is only on you as an individual. Um, and that itself is, I think, true allyship for me, um, not the kind that's like, we put you on here so we feel good and um, we don't care about your needs. Um, so that to me is like the quiet, the, the, the actual work that everyone does and it's a two-way relationship, absolutely. And um, I think I wrote something else in there. Um, also, I think it's really important for emerging, also I hate the word um, as well, um, artists to have the courage to not the courage, but also the, the leaders, of the lead creatives of the team to, to acknowledge the hierarchies, even though you, even if you're in the setting that you're like, no, this is familial, everyone is equal, there is still a hierarchy, and if you acknowledge that, then you understand the responsibility of what you put out or how you make other people feel. So even if you're like, oh, we're all family, everything's great, you can say whatever, there's always going to be that fear as an emerging artist coming and be like, I can't say much, because if I say no, or if I say this is too hard for me, then uh, it might be um, hindering my future relationship with them. So yeah, I think from the, not top down, but from the other way around, it's that acknowledgement of, of the power that you hold and the dynamic it is, um, especially in the arts, everyone's like friendly and nice, but yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I also, um, yeah, I hope that that makes sense. It's just coming from my lived experience um, of, of trying really hard to balance that um, uh, self advocacy and also resting and letting other people help you, um, which is really, really tricky. And yeah, you would know Jeremy or anyone that's. Um, have been marginalized in your life, you feel like you don't need help, you just gotta tough it out. But it's okay to, to, to say what you need and accept help as well. So yeah, I think that's more, what I'm speaking on is more on like the, the safeguarding and the, the culture of the space and not, um, I guess, creative content or creative um, freedom. So I think I'd love to hear um, someone else jump in on that in terms of, you know, how do you generate ideas or share ideas and how do you let go of that or ego, that kind of thing, yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. this guy thinking? Um, I was just going to say, like, what you were saying made me think of it as probably like a really dumb example. Um, but there's like, well, no, it's like from a comic that I saw somewhere on like the internet that like my mum shared. Um, and it, I love it already. It, it's the of like equality and equity where um, someone's like shoveling, shoveling snow off stairs and there's a kid in a wheelchair. He's like, I need the ramp. They're like, yeah, yeah, we'll do the stairs first and then we'll do the ramp. But the kid's like, if you do the ramp, 
everyone can use the ramp. Like, I'm the only person who can't use the stairs, so maybe start with the ramp. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, a really good thing to think about. It's like, yeah, like, there are people who have needs, like, time and space and to rest, but I think all humans could use with rest, especially in this industry where we work crazy hours. It's like, actually, if we, you know, all take time and make the space accessible for everyone, it's actually better for yeah, those that's who... Yeah, before the equality even happens. Hey? Yeah. Yeah, that's surrounding it. That's only the periphery. And then you get into the room and you feel safe to contribute to your best potential, which is, I, I hope, is the um, uh, core of what we strive to do as a team in, in anything. Yeah. yeah. Right. If, if we don't establish... Or do I need the microphone? If, if we don't establish um, like the ground rules from the get-go in terms of what everybody needs to feel comfortable and to feel at ease and to feel uh, grounded enough to be able to create, then you kind of start, I don't know, as an artist, your mind is so busy with just, am I, am I the right person to be in this room? Am I, am I saying this is what I'm offering of any use? But I don't know, I feel when, when everybody's able to speak from the, uh, the start about um, on what they need, what's on their mind, what's going on at home. In fact, um, of late, there's this thing of checking in with each other when you come into like a rehearsal space or during a development and everyone's able to put something on the table that that speaks to their experience and speaks to what they need at the moment on, on this day or during this development or this artistic process. And I, I feel I don't know, those kind of steps move in the direction of helping everybody feel seen, helping everybody feel um, acknowledged and and then the work can begin because I know for sure I'm forever questioning whether anything that's about to come out of my mouth is of any use to anyone <laughs> when I'm in a creative room, you know. But once those things are on the table, then I just feel like I'm, I'm able to fail as well and just offer some, something up because there's no such thing as, I don't know, I mean, bad ideas. It's just an idea until we figure out if it's of use to what we're working on or not, you know. Yeah, that's my two cents. Talk, seeing as I haven't talked yet. No pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Um, I guess the thing that I'm picking up throughout is this sense of, you know, we've said it already a few times, it's the listening. Um, and yes, setting up the boundaries or setting up the space to lower the boundaries, perhaps. <laughs> um, at the beginning is of the day or the process is useful. Um, building a safe rapport between each other so then you can do the work but I guess I'm curious about how people experience with the collaboration with the artists in the room how you maintain that listening throughout that it doesn't drop because I think particularly on the last project we did together that was this this thing um, when you have new artists in the room so for context prior to the last project I did I pretty much work with the same people for like 10 years so there's a really un there's already an unspoken collaborative dialogue going on with me and those performers inside the studio, outside the studio. So we don't have to do the checking in as much in a, in a sort of intention-focused way. It just sort of happens organically. But when you have new artists in the room, there was a sense of, um, I want to figure out how to maintain that sort of energy with new people. And it required a particular kind of listening that was new um, and great. 
but I'm curious how people engage with that from either the directing side or the doing the performing side or the um, collaborator, music, or whatever side that you're coming into the project and, and maintain that listening where the clunkiness happens and in that clunkiness what comes from that as well. So it's just a bunch of questions. And if anyone in the room has a response, yeah. they can feel free to join the table as well to respond. Mm. Yes. Yeah, there's plenty of seats. Like, not going exact, not answering any of your questions, yeah, sorry, yeah. but like just talking about the whole idea of the check-in sort of thing. Like, I've been involved in a few sort of projects, and access check-in starts at the beginnings of every session. And sometimes it was great. Like I, I enjoyed that and I remember a little snippet about my life and about what I was, what I was feeling going into these, these sessions. But then also sometimes, to be fair, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't feel comfortable sharing those sorts of personal things. And like, for, for myself, sometimes I'm like, when I'm in that sort of work situation, I'm, like, I'm here to work, this is a professional thing. I like to keep a little bit of separation, like have those boundaries between my work life and my, my personal life as well. And I think that's something, maybe that's, I think that's something that everybody struggles with. It's not just something that's unique to me. Like sometimes you feel like almost obligated to, to participate in those sorts of things. Yeah. And it's, it's also completely fine not to. Did you, did you want to add something? Just sitting there? I just wanted to join in the new view. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but also having to sit and listen some more. Um, but on that, um, I think it's I think it's okay to have evaluation and reflection and check-in structures that are built into your process and make those very clear as well. That's something that I find helpful and it's something that we do um, from a teaching perspective a lot as well. You know, even if it's a check-in at the beginning, like I'm, I'm sure the traffic light check-in isn't a new idea to a lot of people in this room, but you know, something as simple as that at the beginning of the day where it's just understood that, you know, we've done this before, all right? Yeah, where you're, you're a green light, you're an amber light or you're a red light today and that's all the information that is required to be given, like are you, full of beans and ready to go, are you a bit average or a bit shit? And that's sometimes all the information that the room needs. It's like, okay, easy does it with this person today. Great, we can load you up today, fantastic. And sometimes just having those set structures and likewise as as the as the makers, um, you know, having, you know, without it becoming perfunctory or trite, but having those regular parts of your day or your week where it's like, okay, every Thursday we're going to sit and go, what actually is going on here? Are we happy with how things are going? You know, and setting that side of time to literally write it down or have the conversation and just and like mandate it as part of your process so that you don't have to have the mental load of thinking about, oh no, how's it going? Like, build that in, build that in so that it's there and you don't need to worry about it. That makes sense? Yeah. I hadn't heard of the red light, green light, yellow light. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and you know, if people want to add details, mm. great, no worries. You know, if it's a, I'm an amber light, I'm happy to do it, but my, my kid was screaming all night, so I'm a bit tired. Like, you know, that level of detail is fine, but also sometimes it's fine for people to come in and go, I am red today. <laughs> the end. Yeah. <laughs> and that's. <laughs> 
a nice way of establishing those boundaries. My favourite one to use is when, you know, the power goes out and it just flashes amber and it doesn't know what it's doing. Yeah. <laughs> we used to come up with just like really random yeah. ones. The <laughs> <laughs> power goes out. Yeah. But you're so right. I think in a good room that the person who's sharing is able to share as much as they feel necessary yeah. to keep themselves safe and also enough that, that the room can know who they're dealing with on that day, you mm. know, and who's coming and what they need from the room to, to be able to be as productive as possible. Mm. Even though I struggle with the word productive because we're not machines, but in terms mm. of being of use to whatever you're creating. Mm. Or, or just flipping the focus of what you're doing that day as well. Mm. You know, like, okay, great, we're all, we're all a bit zonked. Mm. It's, a, it's a Friday afternoon. Mm. We probably won't hammer out the hard stuff today. Mm. That's cool. I hear you. I hear you. Um, when we did Gallup, Ian had this great thing where we just say one word and I felt like that was flexible enough that if someone had a lot more than one word to say, they could and if they didn't want to say anything, they could and if that word was in another language, that was cool. So the one word around the thing was cool. It's also, I think, in spaces that we've talked about is also the sharing of labour, I guess, as well, in terms of, you know, obviously not putting the onus on some people or, you know, I guess it's how you offer that support for people to, you know, be seen, be heard and, and whatnot as well and not sort of, you know, be the default person to speak on behalf of all disabled mm. people or all First Nations mm -hmm. people or whatever, which you could never ultimately do. Mm. In, yeah. You're so right, because like when, when everybody acknowledges that they're artists in that room and they've been invited to be artists and not be an ambassador for they're, they're yep. for anything beyond who they are, then you just, I don't know, it feels, when that's acknowledged, then you can just move on. But that's just from my, from my perspective anyway. Uh, I can only speak from uh, the perspective of uh, Black Brad, because that was my first time ever being a, a lead artist in a, in a creative space. And I think it helped that we had um, an incredible director, Matt, who's such a sensitive to the needs of the artists that he's working with. And one, when from the get-go, when everybody acknowledged that everyone had something to offer, I think the, the egos got left somewhere outside for the most part. I mean, no, nobody's perfect anyway, but we're able to just know that we all had something to give and we're all there for a reason. We had all been invited into that room to, you know, to be of service. And I don't know, I could put my artist hat on and not be Mararo, the black guy who's trying to figure his life out. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Aren't we just all trying? Um, I have a question. <laughs> uh, I am a reddish amber today. Um, I have a question for you, Mararo. In your experience of being a lead creative in a room, um, do you feel like that the confidence to make the call, the final call, is just there because of the titles and everyone has a different role or is it something that you have to build up the resilience to because of being who we are and, and like I feel like I struggle a lot with communicating with lead creators like they're really great ones and then there are ones who have really big um, visions and egos and even though they listen that they have a way of dismissing you um, and so when you make an offer as an artist in the room it's really hard to meet them halfway or meet them and not their ego. Um, and so like, I guess, what's the, what's the thing that lead creatives can do to bridge that gap or 
is that confidence something that I'm just eventually going to build? And um, for me, I knew coming into Black Brass that I didn't have the confidence to run that to run that ship by myself. I, I don't mean like run run in terms of directing it, but yeah. run it in terms of helping everybody feel able to to create what, what I felt we needed to make. That's why I needed Afif. Like the first name that I knew that had to be part of that team was Afif Ismail. And for those of you that don't know him, he's an incredible Sudanese poet and a playwright. And for me, I knew if I had this person on my on, on, on my team, he could he could he could clock what I wasn't clocking that that yeah. that, that was being imposed that was being imposed on the work. Because oftentimes like um, the West a Western style of creating has its own, like, I don't know, we've all learned Shakespeare, and we've all kind of have an idea of what theater is supposed to look like, and even that has its own colonialist kind of, oh, you know, roots to it. And I knew Afif being in the room just allowed me to just kind of um, be an artist. And it's about ha having the right people around you, I think. Yeah. That, that was, even before I knew anyone else that was going to be on that team, I specifically asked for Afif to be, to be a part of it, because I, I just knew he'd be able to advocate for for the work from a perspective that's my own, or as close to my own as possible. Yeah. I don't know if that answers it. Yeah, so like, would, would I be correct in re paraphrasing it as like, relinquish the control and like have delegate people to mm. be on your team mm. and trust? Yes. Yeah, not like, oh my God, everything is on, like everyone's looking at me for direction. I have to like decide everything. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that way everybody has, is invested in it because I'm not, I'm not a, there's no, and I, I don't, I don't work in the sense of that um, the, the lead artist is the genius. They're just the person who came up with the idea and everybody has something so beautiful that they can offer to make it even so much bigger than what you'd ever imagined. Yeah. But I knew that I didn't, I, I knew how I'd, I'd struggle with their, with trying to explain, oh, but if we're doing it this way, then it's because it's, it's, it's how it's always been done as opposed to, because the people would be asking why, mm. why are we, you know, and I knew he'd be the provocator on the team, he'd be forever you know, uh, challenging us to reconsider what we've always, um, I don't know, to, to, to reconsider what we're creating in a fresh way and to, and to just challenge ourselves to create something that's, that's fresh, something that's, that's coming from a really African perspective. Because given that the work was really drawing from um, this African well of, 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 of uh, Africans living in the diaspora, I, I, really, I really knew even him being much older than I am you could really speak for that yeah. that truth so much more clearly than I ever could. It sounds like it kind of sounds like what you're saying is you need people in the room that enable you to do yes. these things and yes. not disenable mm. to do these things. And just going like second back to the like conversations around the disabilities, mm. like that's another like the idea of um, being disenabled mm. rather than being disabled mm. is like a concept that. I know like a few sort of writers and scholars are working with sort of around the world. And then it's something that isn't just relating to what we classically think of disability. Mm. Like disenablement is something that happens to any sort of marginalized group that's like exit of like existing on the fringes mm. of, of like a, a mainstream society. Mm. So having what, what was the, the guy's name? Again? A Fifi smile. Having a Fifi smile mm. to to be there is like He's like the person that is questioning what mm -hmm. you're doing, but also mm -hmm. doing it in a way that makes you comfortable to, so true. to play and to have so those true. Like weird sort of uh, ideas that 
Because mm, honestly, I didn't even know who else would be on the team. But if I knew that he'd be there, I knew I could work with whoever came into, yeah. you know, on, on, onto that table because I knew he'd be there for us. Oh, you know, yeah, but it's all right. He, I just, I was so at peace and I could just leave my, all the questions of, oh, are we creating a work for a white audience or a black audience and all? It's just, uh, what, what, what are we making? You know, and he could clock the things that were, would get in the way and things that were of no use or things that were, uh, I don't know, uh, colonialist or something that wasn't, that if, if whatever was getting in the way of creating the work, I knew that he'd be able to point that out to us and help us have the uncomfortable conversations because he's so good at that, man, and he's so soft-spoken. And he just throw this bomb on the table and everyone just like, <laughs> take a moment and would come back into it, but he'd speak the truth, you know, and I knew I couldn't do that and create the work. No, because yeah. it's hard enough just trying to make a room ac feel accepted in the room you know, without trying, and you don't want anybody to feel shot down as well, you know, because yeah. yeah. people are coming with their best intentions, as or, or, or so you imagine, and and he just has, I don't know, a natural talent to just be able to let, put whatever needs to be talked about on the table and let us have the awkward conversations, which is so necessary. Like how, maybe for, for everybody else as well, how, how do you have those sorts of feelings when you're working in space? maybe not necessarily focusing on theatre and performance, but how do you how do you get those sort of same feelings if you're working if you're not working with somebody like that? You know, like if you don't have somebody to rely on that's gonna be that person, like how how do you how do you feel comfortable making work that is true and sort of honest to yourself without that sort of support? Mm. I'm just going to throw that out if anyone's got any. Because, you know. Or do you just point it out? Do you just point it out that that's how you're feeling as a lead artist, that yeah. I don't have somebody here to. Sorry if I've just not even given anybody a chance to speak. <laughs> um, yeah, that's. I, don't, I wonder if that's a way to just say, maybe as the lead artist, I'm feeling this way about well, not. I mean, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm kind of talking kind of this from my perspective. Okay, so like, if I'm. Like, I've been fortunate enough to work with other artists that understand this sort of thing, yep. but then I also work a lot with, like, trades and fabricators mm. and different companies, and I'm the only person in that group of people that has ever been to anything like this and never has any sort of interest in going to something like this. So then how do I bridge that gap between the arts and between these people that I have to work with? Because if I don't work with them, it doesn't get done. Mm. And, like, how... <laughs> Not so much help, but like an example that I've seen that's worked is I get what you mean of like working with people who don't have the same language, saying yeah. that we talk to about in the arts and how the wanky ecology and, and all that stuff and you know. But like I think it's about the every the wanky ecology. <laughs> yeah, it's a long table. Next time, somebody fund us. Um, I think it's about, I think in whatever industry, you've got your KPIs and your priorities, right? And your values coming into a work. I think it's about not dumbing it down, but meeting them where they are um, and sort of translating it into like, before we start this work, we'd like to, let's just talk about what you need or what your priorities and values are. 
in whatever um, language or, or way that is approachable to them and then everyone gets a say and then you kind of collate that and go, okay, how do we incorporate these values from the first steps of making the work and not at the end, uh, not like tacked on top, like, oh, Bruno is the only um, disabled person here. Like, don't make it like a access is the afterthought kind of thing and everyone else probably also has needs as well. So it's about, I think, meeting them there and I think everyone will feel like everyone likes to talk about um I don't know I'm not gonna say themselves but I'm just like um everyone's a narcissist <laughs> everyone loves when you give them um the space to say what they need simple as that I think it's just about creating that container from the beginning regardless of his attempt to meet you halfway and then I don't know and I don't know if it's like a, a woman in me or the disabled woman in me but I tend to just choose my bat pick my battles I'm like <laughs> if they say those things and I'm like okay how many spoons do I have today to say hey look this is my whole life you just had six months but then that's gonna like take a um, first impression, or how do I just go, ha ha ha, that's so cool. Um, so anyway, this contract, hey? Um, you know, it's just like, um, yeah. Just gloss right over it. Just gloss right over it and be like, you're so funny. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I do not have a complication for you. Um, people like that exist, and also, they don't know what's funny or not. Like, I mean, humor is subjective, isn't it? Yeah. 
Um, I think I'm digressing. <laughs> Somebody please jump in and oh, help. I want to, you know, how, you know how you said, um, oh, where did you get the confidence? Um, I remember I was directing something and a guy I was working with said, oh, you need to be more direct. Like, even if you're feeling unsure about what you're doing, you need to pretend that you don't feel that and just say, this is my vision. And I thought about it and I was really annoyed because that's not, there's no rule that says that you've got to direct like that. And my best work has been when I've been comfortable enough to not know what I'm doing yeah. and figure it out. So yeah, for me, the answer to when do you feel the confidence? Yeah, I don't think I ever will feel the confidence, but I now am cool with not feeling the confidence. Yeah. Um, I work in a dance company called The Farm, who were collaborative, four people, we make everything together, we run the company together, low-key a bit of a disaster, but it's really fun. Um, and one of the um, things, because we're based on the Gold Coast, which contemporary dance and the Gold Coast are like the two... Like opposite, everyone just laughed. <laughs> and we did this performance once where we went out into a sandbank. We were there for 48 hours and we just did contemporary dance <coughs> right in front of them. They had to watch it. And we called this guy, we never got his name, we called him Doug. Doug rocks up in a tinny with a 30 block of export yeah. and punch and cones at seven in the morning <laughs> watching contemporary dance. And he was like, this is sick. Right, can I like, live stream this to my mates on Facebook? <laughs> and so Doug's now like a follower of the farm who comes along. Great. Yeah, so we have this huge thing. We've called it Bogart, Bogan Art. <laughs> and we're all about making art accessible to people who um, art in this world of, like you said, wanky ecology. Yeah. Um, so I find that, like, if you actually, like, they're just as feeling as uncomfortable as you mm -hmm. are about it or they don't feel accepted, they yeah. don't feel yeah. encouraged to engage in an artistic way. They're like, oh, I'm just the builder, you do the art stuff. But it's actually, like, we have a saying that's um, you bring your expertise but you're not confined to them. So as much yeah. as I, as an artist, can comment on how a set should be built, the set builder can comment on the artistic yes. yep. value of it. And I think if you go in with that kind of um, mindset, then the Bogans really, they get it. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I yeah. wasn't like, I still know Dean and I've been out on his boat since. Actually, <laughs> I did get stoned with Dean once and it was, it was, it was great. Uh, and like, I, I think that idea of, not, it's not dumbing down, it's no. actually making art for the people and that's what I really, really like. It's like that idea of, I'm going to pronounce this wrong because I think it's French, but déplacé. Has anyone heard that term before? Or maybe I'm saying the wrong... Well, it's basically saying that like we all like kitschy, trashy shit. Like yeah. the kitschier and the trashier, the sort of better. That's and why more. they work. And that's, yeah, that's why they work, because it appeals to a lot of people. People love to be entertained and, and like be able to see something, be it contemporary dance or theatre or like contemporary art, and be sort of entertained by it and see themselves in it a little bit. And I think that's, I think that's something that disabled artists and disenabled artists do, do really well, because we can sort of see things from that sort of perspective a little bit more because I don't know about everyone else but I find myself 
like bouncing between the different like stratifications of like our society, like our society, but also society more broadly. So you find you have like a wide network of lots and lots and lots of different voices to draw on. And then that helps you to make the sort of the trashy stuff that the things that people can go for. But I think that's one of the, I mean, we've got, we've had a conversation and it's nice to see it going in this, sorry, direction now because collaboration isn't always about when someone's representative of some different or diverse group, you know, it's about ability of practice, it's about where you live and your, you know, lived experience is such a broad church um, and, you know, being in a room with a group of collaborators, you won't be of the same skill set as others in that space and I think that's as equally an important offer in this conversation as much as you know um, the tapestry of life um, but you know I think it also you know a lot of my practice as a producer was working with regional communities and I was always so conscious of like being the, the flying flyer person having been based in a metropolitan area but you know giving that time and space to actually um, not be ever the expert in the room in that sense and sort of allowing sort of um, agency at that local level to flourish, yeah. I think the audience, come on. No, don't leave me. Okay, sorry. Building and I think Hugo is in the tunnel. Yeah. Is he down at the rail tunnel? 
just so everybody knows. Just, yeah, just nice seamlessly working in good luck. Good luck, thanks. Yeah, I came without enough detail. It's fine. Um, Simone just has a few kind of provocations and questions that she'd like to chuck out. Um, there's a few here, so maybe I'll just chuck in a couple. Um, how can independent artists lead on embedding equity into their practice when the sector is competitive in terms of time and money? So good. That feels like that's almost <laughs> probably juicy enough. But I'll check another one. Um, what does equity look like in a creative development process between performers, artists, and artists with varied experience? Do we want another one? Yeah. Can artists with a disability expect to access performance training? And if so, what can this look like? Maybe I'll see. Read them again, sure. How can independent artists lead on embedding equity into their practice when the sector is so competitive in terms of time and money? If anybody wants to come and join us at the big table and answer that, that would be great. Because I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Mama. I don't want to. I don't want to answer it. I want to ask more okay. about that. Oh. Is that <laughs> is that assuming that equity costs? Mm. Because this is something that comes up within the context of organisations when people talk about inclusion and diversity, and everybody says, "Oh, we really want to get to that." But we need more resources. Um, you know, so I guess it's this, yeah, I mean, I always find that I get it at one level, <laughs> but I also just think it's kind of crazy. I mean, I guess practically speaking, it does cost, right? Like making access needs uh, priority does cost, but I think it's good. I see this as like a, a result of all the like shit colonial history that we've kind of had to deal with over the past uh, many hundreds and hundreds of years. Like it's a system that's set up for a few people, not for many people. And it, it's, it's definitely going to cost more until we reach that tipping point where organisations, uh, buildings, like everybody that's designing these things, architectures are baking all these like access needs into the very, very beginnings of the project and then that's when it's going to start not being figured as a, this is what I think personally, but it's not going to be stuck figured as a, as a big cost, a big outlay, it's just going to be, well this is how we do things. And I think just a yes and that, and go back to the provocation about independent artists, is that it is systemic, so you know, if, I think it is the responsibility of the institutions and the ecology to, to set the scene to enable that to happen because we can't always say, you know, the people who are making the work have, have to carry that, you know, the, pe the people who are, you know, when you think about the, I'm going to use the word ecology, but, you know, the, the kind Not of grass wanky, and the roots and all of that, you know, the, we can't ask the artist to hold all, all of this, I guess. So I think creating those spaces where independent artists can can actually do that 
equity work that they all really want to do and try really hard to do is a responsibility of organisations as well. And I think even with like funding now, like when you're applying for grants for your own sorts of projects, a lot of them will let you have dedicated access needs as a budget line as well. So that's like as an independent artist, that's something that you can factually write from the beginning when you're starting to write your grants and like flesh out the ideas for your projects. You know, there is money there to be used for this. And I know it's a priority with the Australia Council at the moment. I'm not too sure about uh, the PSC. I mean, I think it is. They funded my project before with access costs baked into it. So I think they're quite receptive to that sort of stuff as well. But then also to like be a bit contrarian as well, play devil's advocate, it's like there's a lot of independent artists if they get funding for projects and still put these things on and it's like then those access costs are something that they have to wear. It's like is it okay for us to well personally I don't think it is, but is it okay for us to expect everything to be accessible to absolutely everybody, you know, because just the, the practicality of that is kind of like mind mind-numbing, really. Like you can make you can make strides towards equity, but the reality is it's probably never gonna be hundred percent. Slightly different but kind of on the tangent, I guess. Um, riffing off this sense of does it cost? Uh, for an independent, I guess, which is all I have ever been, so that's all I can talk from, is um, the cost of time to think about things and trouble the way you think so that you approach it differently. And I guess the speaking on Simone's point is that, yes, that, that feeling of competitiveness and that you are on this um, treadmill of funding timeline that you have to hit can easily wash away the sense that there's no room to think about it, but that's obviously bullshit. Um, so I think it's that sense of taking the time with yourself and valuing the time to, to travel the way you're thinking about things and who you're engaging and why you're engaging them, um, for what you're engaging them to do as well. So I think that to me is the sticking point or the bit that I've noticed and it takes time but that is an investment in your own work but then also the people you're engaging with and also your ecology in some way, shape or form. But I think also as artists, we have such a big mind shift to, maybe mind shift might not be the word, but um, a big, uh, the word I wanted to use for such a long term, paradigm shift, yeah. you know, <laughs> in terms of how we are thinking and how we see ourselves as, as artists. Even in The Tempest, that was the first time I've ever called in sick to a rehearsal and had, there was such a guilt, but you think, oh, they're paying me. Even though it's there on the contract that you are legally allowed to do this kind of thing, and there's such like we carry this idea of how we've always done things, and even uh, um, one of the actors had to take some time off to recover from an illness, and they did a fantastic job stepping in. There was such an empowerment in the room to feel that we need to look ourselves, look after ourselves first, and the work will will profit from that. 
you know, and even though it was, I don't know, and, and even even having some some of the actors brought their kids to some of the rehearsals, and I remember like the, my my brother was like, I'm tired as well, but I can do this too, you know. I don't have to take the day off to look after my kids if they're sick, and it just it, those small things kind of really blew my mind that they're possible until you see someone actually doing them. Exactly. Then you take it into your next room, mm, yeah. and then that person carries it to the next room. Then it feels like it's a gradual process that these these things become yeah. more and more normalized, mm. you know, because I don't know, even though I began saying that, uh, I, I don't like the word product, um, produced because we're not machines, but sometimes we click into that kind of way of working where we just put our head down and we do the work despite what our body is telling us, despite what our mental health is telling us, despite all the signs in our lives that's falling apart, but we, we put the work at the center of it. And I think that needs to shift, man, because you, you burn out, you know, you. Mm. You, I don't know. You finish a production and your your sick or your mental health is in a in a good place, and you're making it so much harder for you to create moving forward and even to work with the people that you're working with. Because I don't know, you're less patient with each other. You're you're less you're burning bridges more likely, you know, by the time you finish your season. But yeah, I think it's it's definitely one. I don't know. One. It, it feels like it's, it's a gradual process, even though it feels very slow. But. It's kind of, I mean, like, it's kind of glacial as well mm. like in, in its mm. pace. Like, the Disability Discrimination Act mm. in Australia turns 30 this year. I know. So, we've had like 30 years of legislation to make things easier for disabled people, but yeah, it's does still feel like mm -hmm. it's moving pretty yes. slowly. Sorry to those that part of the next one which you kept the panel discussion that we had Friday night at the Blue Room, which um, was myself and Georgie Ivers and Caroline Bodie to the end of the lab last week. But I wanted to cite in response to Simone's publication, I think the um, the Jenny Seely model, which um, Caroline spoke about, which is she thinks about access as a character. A character that needs a salary, a character that needs a plot, a character that needs, you know, everything else that a person in the room demands, wants, and needs as a creative process. And then when you consider it that way, you sort of then suddenly you're opening up catering becomes quite expensive and not the Oslo interpreter or the audio describer and those sorts of things. I think how you can centre in the context of the conversation that we're having, I guess not necessarily just access, but equity and all those sorts of things. Start from that point and then see what the ripple effects are from that in your budget cycle is. Um, That's a good way. Because like I said on that panel talk conversation too, you know, if you're a deaf person, you have one night necessarily that you can probably attend out of a three week season. Mm. Why? <laughs> Hi, sorry, just quickly. Just to speak on what you were saying before and that about the idea of like um, like why like the competitive things and like burning yourself out, art has value in society, but we're not saving lives. And I think that people just need to chill the fuck out a little bit when it comes to the arts. Like it's just theatre, it's a show, people are coming for entertainment. If the costumes are a little bit shit because we have an Auslan interpreter for more than one night, then the costumes can be a bit daggy, mm. and that's fine. Like, it's about values and priorities and mm. things like that. And I think we need to, as the arts, reassess this kind of pedestal that everyone puts it on 
it's the BL, like be all and end all of the world. It's not, it's just theatre. Like, like we will all get over it. If it's not as perfect as it can be, don't burn yourself out over it. It's not that important. It's great. It's such a privilege to do this for a living, but like, just take it easy. Indeed. And even if you do it perfect, there's always going to be the people that Someone will criticize behind it. the yeah. curtain. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. So. Um, some thoughts that I hope will come across kind of cohesively around um, cost is where my brain started from and where the opportunity is. So, you know, if Australia Council is putting forward... Um, asking about who has a reconciliation action plan or a diversity and inclusion plan, surely you think that, okay, well, if you've got one of them, then you've got a stronger chance of having funding. And if the organisations are being asked that, then when is that going to filter down into every part of the ecology? Um, but also, when is it just a, a, a ticker box? When is it genuine engagement? And where are the actual opportunities for exciting and interesting things and that that just the ticker box is I feel like it gets um, negatively framed but it still needs to exist maybe you still need to have at least have a diversity and inclusion plan sure it's pretty shit if it just sits on a shelf and no one activates it but if that means that you've got a budget line in there because that's part of your diversity and inclusion plan yeah I could ramble on for a little bit I'm going to leave it there. Where's the opportunity for interesting things to come out of that past, the base? Yeah. Um, so we just we just got money off OzCo and DLGSC, um, and I've been producing for ages, and now I'm going, oh, yeah, it's fine to have a big whack of time for making sure we can do things right, and it's fine to pay people NAVA rates, which is 100 bucks an hour, and the grant funders have been like, yeah, okay, cool. And I think for a long time I was, um, yeah, nervous or um, just not educated enough about the true cost of things. Um, yeah. I just want to touch on the, I think, the last question that Simone uh, offered, which is, can artists with disabilities be expected or expect to access performance training? Um, I think an example of that expectation being subverted is done really well um, either with the hub and the lab. I think last year I was privileged enough to be in last year's lab and hub and this year as well, um, where I think I was the only one out of five artists who identify with having a disability and we had that access and inclusion panel that I will go down. And that was it for us, and then about a bajillion other incredible artists um, who didn't feel like they had to be on the panel and speak about this niche thing. And because we didn't expect us to have that performance training, because I didn't expect to even see peers like me, um, because people like Jeremy and Simone was like, no, let's just not expect that they're just going to walk up to this generous and invigorating hub let's make space for them and then we made this lab all about artists with disabilities and then let me tell you the feeling of 
of affirmation and just belonging that I get when I walk up on the browning day of the hub and having not five, but almost like 15, 20 people and support workers with disabilities just here, incidentally. And I think it's that question in your mind of like, don't expect because it's no, um, there's not, equity isn't about everyone sitting on the same height, it's about <laughs> padding it up until we can all see the same thing. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, yeah, I don't think we can expect that. Um, and I can only speak from my life experience, which is I never thought I would fit in any traditional arts, tertiary education program because I don't see anyone like me, and I don't think if I come up, I have the strength to self-advocate to be like, hi, give me the training, because that, by the time I get there, I'd be so too exhausted. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that was really beautiful that Simone um, offered, and it's a question that I take for granted a lot of times because of how um, things are shifting, but yeah, it, don't, don't expect, and we cannot expect that until it is the norm. It's so interesting that you mentioned that because um, I do a bit of work in tertiary as well and I'm not the only person in the room uh, that, that does and I think that increasingly our, our training and education systems are becoming more and more commercial because of a litany of reasons. Um, there's not enough soapboxes and time in the world for me to get into that today. Um, but I think that it's a, it's a similar thing. So yeah, you're right, it should be better and it's not. Um, but also, likewise, feeding into the independent thing um, that was being talked about as well, I think that that's sometimes the joy of working as an independent is you can, like, you can make your project whatever the fuck you want it to do um, because you're not answerable necessarily to, to other budgets or production schedules or, or whatever that's going around. And, and as, as Poppy was saying before, I want to echo that as well. Like, it takes a while to be like, yeah, no, nah, no, we won't be working five days a week, eight hours. That's not what this process is. And you know why? Because it's my process. Because I'm an independent and I don't have to play by your rules. That's what being an independent is, you know? Um, do I have any money? No, but it means I can make my own rules. And that's, that's the trade-off with that, you know? So when you're putting together funding apps, um, it's like, yeah, well, you know, we'll be doing, we'll be doing three and a half day weeks the end, that's what this process is. And uh, and yep, you're gonna pay for a nanny to come on this tour. And uh, yep, you're gonna give me, you know, three grand so that we've got access. Like, cause that's what this process is, you know? And if you don't like it, um, great. You don't have to be in it because it's not your process, it's mine. And I think that that's, that's something that as independents actually we, um, even though sometimes we have less funding, we are more nimble to lead the way and make those changes in that because who's gonna stop us? No one, that's the point. I think just going off, off that as well, like as an independent, there's ways to make these, uh, uh, like, like there's ways to meet access needs that are creative and mm. are interesting. Like, mm. I've started to think more and more about the work that I make and how I make it accessible. And then that isn't just something that I need because I feel like I'm obligated to. It's something that I'm like excited about. Like I'm doing audio descriptions for work of mine at the moment. It's going to be showing 
and I own it. But and I make it part of work as well. I want to make it fun. I want to make it interesting. And I want to make it echo the work. Yeah. Like so, like saying, like being uh, independent and nimble and nimble creative. That's cool. I'm gonna call myself a nimble creative. <laughs> yes. Being a nimble creative, like it allows you to do those sorts of things that like big orgs can't as well because they have to go through those rounds of permission and protocol to do these things. The way it's always been. The way it's yeah. always been, whereas I can just think, okay, I'm going to do it this way because I think it's fun and interesting and hopefully other people are going to get something out of it as well. I feel like I dobbed you into this table <laughs> and I'm um, only a bit sorry. No, no, um, I think, like... I think the question about training, and I want to be really clear that I'm speaking as myself, Alexa Taylor, not a representative of mm. an institution that I work at. Oh, yeah. but I work, likewise, I work, likewise. Like, yeah. I've worked at a couple of different training institutions for a long time, and I think that question about training is the same question as the how do we get funding um, in a system that's competitive. And it's about that sense of there being a, a kind of limited slice of opportunity and what is the criteria that means that people get to access it, whether that's the funding for your project or whether that's a spot in a, in a training institution. And I want to um, just maybe bring the conversation back to what a couple of you said about paradigm shifts mm -hmm. and shifts in the community in that if you have this sense of, okay, you can only have X number of shows or X number of students or whatever the, the thing is, what is the thing that we see as the important heart of mm. what drives the decision-making around that? And I think we're seeing that shift in our arts sector at the moment of like, is it about who has the absolute flashiest project or is it about this is a work that mm tells important stories that is contributing something that needs to be part of the wanky cultural <laughs> ecology <laughs> of, um, of the arts. And I think that's the same kind of questions and accountability that we have to be asking of the institutions that are training places and they're important things to be asking. Um, I also, <laughs> I not talk for too long, <laughs> but um, I was part of the Koyang Hub last year. Yeah, <laughs> last year. And I just found it so enriching to be like from a space of being scattered individuals to be like, here is a collective of people and this whole room cares about this. Mm. And I'm feeling that right now in the sense of here's our, not the entire sector, but like some great folks from the sector who've shown up to say this is, this is the thing that is at the heart or one of the things that is at the heart of what's the decision-making process about what we value the most mm. in deciding what goes forward. And last point, and then I'll put the mic back. <laughs> um, I remember last year in one of the panels, um, someone, I think it was Jade Lilly, someone asked a question about institutions and, oh, she talked about institutions. Also, someone asked a government funding body about sustainability and they were like, we can change our process, but the sector needs to demand it. And the mm. sector was like, well, we're exhausted and we're always doing the demanding. You need to come to the table and change your processes. Mm. And I think it's both. And I think mm. these conversations like we're having right now is a really exciting part of that. Someone take the mic from me. <laughs> Just to add on to the training stuff, I've never I've never gone through any formal training myself. And a part of me that the longer that I've that I continue working in this beautiful field, the more appreciative I am that I and actually never did because <laughs> 
when you realize how limited the roles are for coming from a minority background, you're either the assistant or the slave or the, that will mess up your mind frame coming into the artistic world. And if you ever think that the only role that's available to you is to be the little thing that the person that comes in for the 10 minutes, you know, and you're never the center of the narrative. Not, it's not about an ego thing, it's about if you're not challenging from within the institutions to say, what kind of work are we teaching? What kind of work are we learning about? What kind of um, creative process are we and, uh, passing on to these students? And I don't know, because it just feels it still has that very colonial hierarchy of white is at the center, every other thing kind of needs to work itself around it. And I don't know, I just feel, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but it just, it feels sometimes, sometimes you might have missed a bullet actually by not going through these institutions because it will, I don't know, like you hear some of these stories of just how you've gone through a three-year process of learning only to be taught to ever play, that your the roles available to you are the most insignificant, not that there's any insignificant, but you're just given this, you know, yeah, I don't know. So let's keep talking. I was just going to say it's a contemporary dance thing to have open classes. You, in the morning you start your day with class hours, they warm up, they do dance things. Um, but it's, it's an open process. You put the call out, you invite people into the room. And I think that's a much more valuable experience. Like tertiary education is a thing, but I think it's also about like making space for people to have performance experience within a room and to come into spaces like that and get that experience as well. So if you have the opportunity as an independent artist or as an organisation to let people into your building to join in on class and be accessible, to come watch runs, to come be a part of the process, that's more valuable than a tertiary education. So true. Yeah. And on the other side of that, someone that did go through all those processes from a young age to early adulthood, coming out the other side and then entering into the independent field, there was a sense of undoing a lot of things. So, and that's still going on. Not to get into a therapy moment right now, but. Um, no, but in that sense of like realizing that this like disillusion that comes from being in a conservatoire environment, and then when you start making and you still want to do a certain type of art and you require certain type of performers with skill sets, you get locked into this little bubble. So then you're at the mercy of what's coming out of that institution with who you can work with and why you can work with it until you sort of go, oh, hang on a second, what does it mean? You know, I can't wait for the institution to get a diverse equity like performers coming out in the field. So I have to then go, well, who can be the dancer? Who can be the musician? Which then, even though that's uh, for someone that was locked into that conservatoire way of thinking about your art form, feels very intimidating. Um, that tension or that unknown space there of bringing those bodies and people and ideas into the room is kind of then the, the joy of cracking open what you know dance or whatever your form is to be um, and then paradigm shifts and then hopefully then you go back into the institution and then cause some sort of a ripple. I'll be kidding myself a little bit but um but yeah you, you know. But yeah so that's the other side of it because even if we did have open class it's really not that open. 
and who comes to it sure. if I'm going to be critical of the art form. Um, but yeah. Sorry. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I just ran at the table at that. Because yes. I worked in theatre for a long time and then started working in dance. And the open class in the morning blew my brain because it feels so much more open than anything in theatre. Yeah. yeah. Like mind blowingly open. Wow. No, I can definitely feel that as well. Um, like when we did, yeah, our last project, you had people in, and like, I don't know, it was because of an assignment because they were honor students, um, but it, oh, that's a con, that's a con, right? I don't know that word, I don't know what that means. Um, yeah, something else, person, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it felt so much di different, but like, I think I I never thought that open access was a thing that was available outside of academia. Like, like the whole like, oh, make your research available to the public thing. And so I operated on the preface of, I don't know this because I didn't have a class for it, so I'll just rock up. And that's, that's literally what I've been doing of like, there's a show, I'd be like, hi, can I come shadow it? Can I watch it? Um, that's how I learned. Um, but I didn't know that if we can make that a, a thing. Yes, Justin. <laughs> um, oh, I just wanted to offer from my perspective teaching a little bit in um, classical music. I'm not a classical musician, but I um, teach a little bit in that um, field. And I think that uh, setting is really failing a lot of uh, students because the, ed the model of, the edu of education is like, a century old or something in terms of like what it's preparing people to come out of the university to do like the jobs that they're preparing people to do just don't exist anymore and probably haven't for, for ages um, and also the students really desire I notice at least to learn about like other ways of being an artist and they don't get access to that training but I just basically all I wanted to add is that I think um, and this has been really important for me in the context of experimental sound practices because there aren't very many platforms to learn and share in that space. Um, making like alternative spaces for, for learning and sharing has been really vital to how that community has like grown and um, developed ideas and um, welcomed new, new kinds of voices in. And I just think it's, um, it's a really powerful thing that we can do to create alternative spaces for learning and sharing and I'm really enjoying this like the last you know five minutes in particular of like how people are hearing about each other's ways of sharing and what's difficult about them and what works and and maybe there's like a learning that we can do from each other to start building our own kind of models or our own spaces for that kind of learning even across disciplines to happen and I think like because I think personally that institutions are just failing everyone at the moment, um, I, I think it's really vital actually, and, and um, yeah, something that is, can also be really nourishing um, for communities and individuals as well, um, rather than draining and exhausting, can be like a wellspring of, of energy and, and resource that we take um, and you know, build the vitality of our community and, and ourselves as we do that as well. So I just think that's something it really matters to me, and I would love to talk to more people about um, how to do that as well. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of things about institutions are bound. So I 
Mind if I don't use that? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, I dislike them intensely. Um, but and, and to what you were saying before, Emma, that theatre does tend to be um, have a little little tower of its own. It's built of centuries of people being very special because they're allowed to perform. So I think this whole idea of taking, which is, is not a new one, but of taking control of yourself and, and of your world is, is a wonderful thing. Um, but what I really wanted to say was, um, as somebody who's worked in tertiary a lot over the last 30 years, one of the things that I've always found very difficult is that we never get to work with people who are other than able-bodied, supposedly able-bodied, do you know? And to actually find a way, one of the reasons I wanted to join this hub was to actually meet people from who think different ways, who come from different approaches and have different, um, different dreams, because I think one of the things that happens with certainly in tertiary education is that your dreams kind of get cultivated and um, get afflicted and inflicted with other people's dreams of what they see you as being or could be or should be. Whereas, do you know, to pick up Libby's point, if you are independent, you are independent with the what-ifs, the, you know, you don't have to build a body around you that, that stops you from doing anything with regardless of what capabilities your body has. Do you know? That the, that the the body of the work becomes the dream, becomes the possibility, which will eventually become something that other people will enjoy, or not. And I'm all for, by the way, I love it when an audience actually doesn't like something and has can has got something to to push against. Do you know? So I think that's the other good thing about this is that we're actually poking sores. Um, to make them bleed a bit so that they'll heal. Anyway, <laughs> it's going to be gory. <laughs> oh, uh, can I carry on with the boring stuff? Uh, I, I just want to flag a nervousness I've got about a conversation that I can feel developing across the country, and I suppose I was hearing it uh, at the Minister's session yesterday about the national cultural policy, which is the issue of self-care. It has come out of the pandemic. And I'm so, like at one level, I'm so glad that conversation's happening and we can start to talk about as a sector, how do we structurally pare back this over delivery that we've all, you know, we've, we've colluded with for so long. So that's fantastic, but I realise I have a nervousness as this conversation develops into policy that in that we don't end up with some homogenous uh, words that do away with the very particular needs of uh, artists and makers and audiences who've who still need this special attention. I mean, oh, yeah, I know my language is old, I'm old. Um, but you know where I'm going with this? I don't want to see this, converse, this conversation that we've started with here homogenised and dumbed down to, oh, we all suffer too much and how are we going to pair it back? Yeah, that's... Mm. I hope that makes sense. It's like we don't want another 
NDIS basically because you know, my experience of that is yeah. basically it says you all kind of the same at this level and it's difficult to get you through that. Yeah. Mm. All of these conversations have just made me want to talk a little bit about a show that I worked on a few years ago called Experience Collider. And Bernie's in the room, she worked on the show as well. And I just think that although there was definitely some burnout from the artists in that show, that it was just this incredibly lovely process. I mean, the show was based on um, two groups of young people meeting, one of the groups fully able-bodied circus performers and the other um, teenagers, all of them teenagers who were, had all sorts of disabilities. In fact, they all had three intersecting disabilities each and then made a show together over a period of two years. And I just learned so much from that show. And I know that the young people from the circus who I was working with for many years, they, they learned enormous amounts from all of these diverse um, ways that we had to approach the work to include everyone. And that insight and that um, uh, into all these different ways of working and, and the constant problem solving that we had to do certainly changed our lens and in a way that was so remarkable. There was, um, you know, just, just so much learning going on and it's just a great model and a great way to think about the paradigm shift and the way that, you know, the more that we can experiment, the more that we can throw together such unlikely groups of, in this case, young people to create something together, the more that we discover and the more that we have in our toolkit and, you know, in the industry as artists, as, you know, everyone benefited from that show um, from all sides, I think. So uh, it's just a really nice way to, uh, yeah, to, to think about the problems when, when we, we, there are models around, you know, where people have excelled in, in um, experimenting and exploring and discovering things that work. <laughs> I don't know what I can totally contribute, but I just wanted to jump in because I was thinking of the show earlier. It's a great example. We were having a conversation about this show uh, on the very first day, actually, because I think we can't help but be so moved by our experience as artists, um, can like forever changed by having had the privilege of working on that show, and I don't think anybody knew what, what that experience was going to be. But I wanted to just kind of jump in and add that it's such a great um, example for this conversation in particular, for anyone that doesn't know the work or what happened, um, because it's the whole time I've been thinking about exactly that work, because it's referenced everything that we've talked about from the very beginning and the actual, like, the, the essence of what this conversation is. And starting going, like, way back to the earlier stuff in the conversation about how do we have equality, how do we have equity, how do we have support, um, how do people lead the room? How do people come and share roles? And hierarchy got mentioned a lot. And it's just the whole process was such an um, in incredible example for me of breaking all those things down, how they can exist. And a lot of it has to do, I just have to credit Sam Fox for that. So if anyone does not know Sam Fox, you should really find out who that man is. Um, and I think we have a lot to, um, yeah, he's a lot to teach us about. And But he also, so his uh, ethos and the way he ran the room was 
he was the director and he was very uncomfortable with that term. He doesn't like being the leader in the room, but he also acknowledged that moment or those many moments throughout the process where it was his job to be the boss. Um, and he just did it in such a way where his, the hand of his leadership was so subtle and so caring and so gentle. So I, I, it's difficult to give exact examples, but because it happened over such a long period, but where he pulled together this incredible piece of artwork, a whole hours long work of people who can't stand on their own feet, who were flying on aerial, you know, several feet in the air and upside down and people verbalizing who don't normally verbalize and learn it. We made whole new languages. We had movement languages. We learned sign language. We just, it was, it was just such a rich process that meant that every single person in the room was equal, we had equality, we just padded, exactly, it's a great example, Chris, like an analogy, like we just, he just padded everyone what, for what every single individual needed, whether it was us as professional artists, fully able-bodied, with, you know, you know, able to just help someone else in a harness or in a hoist or whatever it was. Um, it's hard, it's hard not to ramble about this show and make but an actual point. That's what being a lead artist in a room is, right? It's about enabling everyone in the room to do the very best job that they can working towards a common goal. Being the lead artist isn't about going, you stand there, you shut up now, these are the words you're going to say. Yeah. But unfortunately, in a lot of rooms, it's like that. Well, that's when I'm like, how they're do fucked. Don't go in it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. The, the only other little thing I'll add before I stop rambling is the, the one of the other benefits. I can't. It's very hard to like like crystallize and and huh. say what was exceptional. About it. <laughs> sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> so sorry. Um, is that what it did do? That it caught that padding that he gave to everyone and everything and turning things like turning access into a character or a, just mm. a part of it, turning someone's um, deafness or inability to use actual words um, but only make sounds, turn that into a character and a material or an ingredient mm. in the room meant that there were the hierarchy just became blurry. There was no edges. There were no the, the, the difference between me on my legs and someone in a chair. So everything got kind of smoothed out in this way that was not homogenous. It was the opposite. It was the antithesis of that. And we come back to ecology and, you know, yeah, the living every each each person, each thing, each need, each act was was individual but interconnected. Oh. Yeah. Um, Kim and I had a really enriching conversation about how people think that they can be independent, but in reality, we are all interdependent, and that's how we can cater these access needs to the individual and realize that. We're not a monolith, um, we're not representative for everyone. I can only speak for myself. Not everybody uses a wheelchair um, or glasses, same thing. It's, yeah, it's the, the concept of interdependence that I think is at the core of his leadership, which is so beautiful to watch because it should be, again, um, a norm, but it isn't yet. What I think is really interesting about what you're saying about sound box. So the idea that uh, everyone's sort of had some people up, so some people like so everyone ends up on an equal footing. It's like, but then there's that idea that there was disabled artists and able-bodied artists, and that's something that I kind of have a bit of a problem with because many 
like what you were saying, Chris, with disabilities and it's not a binary thing, it's not an either or, it's a spectrum, right? Like, and it's something that you can develop. It's like it's a marginalized group that anybody can signal flip and be a part of to one. Cyclical. Well, it's like, yeah, cyclical. It's like, what, like you can, and you can go in a way, people be more disabled, less disabled, and that can sort of change as you go through time. And I think what's really interesting about the idea of having like a lead creative that operates in a way to, to sort of like leverage some people up and make, make everybody kind of at the same sort of level, I think that's interesting, but it should be something that starts a lot a lot younger, like that's something that should be in our kindies and our daycares and our primary schools and our high schools, like it makes me think about, I can't remember the name of the person, I can't remember the name of the podcast, but I was listening to this podcast about this woman in the States who had uh, her daughter with cerebral palsy and her daughter really wanted to go to a ballet class and she signed her up for this ballet class and she went along and the, the teacher in the class was like, oh, we have a special group for her. Like, we have a special class. Like, she goes on Tuesdays, the special group. And, and the mum was like, well, that's crazy. Like, they're not all professional dancers. They're like four years old. Like, why can't yeah. she just go in class? If she, if she can't do something as well as other people, then it, it doesn't really matter. But this, this uh, ballet teacher was really hesitant to let uh, this little girl, you know, uh, different needs be a part of the same class as everybody else it, because she, I guess she was thinking in her mind she's going to have to then tailor the needs of the class to the, the lowest common denominator and then everyone else is not going to get the same sort of experience and it's like that weird idea of disabled people have to be segregated for their own benefit but it's also really sneakily for the benefit of the able it was interesting that project was actually mostly funded by the Telephone Institute, and it was the Telephone Institute that made the, that dictated that um, half of the half of the performers had to be had to have three intersecting disabilities, and if they didn't, they weren't eligible to be part of the project. And there was a whole study done. Um, to see how the project affected the lifestyle and the happiness and the um, effect of these people, which was which was great in lots of ways. But then we found that there were some students who, and we did sneak one person in who didn't wasn't fully able-bodied and wasn't disabled enough, mm. <laughs> uh, and she got in to do the project. And I was mentoring her at the time. Um, we just we just managed to get her in the project. But yeah, it was it was problematic for us that, you know, we, we had those two pools and that we couldn't work with people in between. And I think that, you know, that was, that was a problem. Um, at the same time, we had 20 performers and that was enough. We couldn't really work with any more than that. Um, but yeah, that was something that we definitely noticed in the process. I think, and yeah, just to, yeah, I think what I learned, my experience from Experience Collider and Sam's leadership and how we ran it and just the time together was exactly what you're talking about, is I learned that it's a spectrum. 
so that there wasn't that there isn't distinctions and there is a range and we all need to adapt and we all need to change and we all need different we all need to be able to speak up and yeah that just particularly and I and I I say all that through the lens of someone who comes from that world of classical ballet elite gymnastics uh, contemporary dance formal training where there is there is a range that you are looking for and even as an able-bodied person you generally are not like achieving that range so there's a very um uh you know the expectations of what the body should be doing is not even realistic mm. for anyone in that world so yeah so i was able to learn through that process that exactly that is a spectrum and i think that also um the diversity in the room was so immense like it was crazy diverse you know people's all the different abilities that were brought to the table and that was the magic actually in that show was the diversity yeah. I'll just say, after dinner, it's a bit served. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> so, a few of the closing remarks. Um, I just want to share something that was quite poignant for me at um, Showcase a couple of weeks ago, where someone pointed out that we are all on a spectrum of ability because as we age, uh, how we experience the world and the needs that we require to have a full and happy life will shift and change. And um, I hope that as we live in a society that is um, more open to discussing and sharing what is different and individual about all of us that uh, we're heading to a world where as we age it's it's going to be easier. I don't know, that's just me being hopeful, but also hopeful that we all live to a, an age where we will all experience having to share what we need to experience and have a full life. Yeah. Um, I just want to say really quickly that not everyone has the privilege to choose what rooms that they go into. Some people have to just accept the work that comes their way. So just because there are black people in a room, it doesn't mean that room is being run the right way and things no, like no, that. No. So I think it's quite, like, we should all realise that and accept that, like, yes, we can say, well, just don't go into those rooms that make you uncomfortable or that aren't accessible to you, but also just don't have shit rooms. <laughs> that was, that's, yeah. Yeah, no, I totally get you. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Unfriended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't have shit rooms is don't a good way to end. Yeah. <laughs> don't have shit rooms. Yeah. Are there any last conversations? Because it is time and I'm very aware that the parking inspector may be around. <laughs> but just a huge thank you to all the guests and for everybody. It was so such a nice conversation.